Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Tom Mortimer. We're at uh, the Lake Adoe t- Tasting Room in Dundee. It's November 29th, 2023. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here, Rich. Appreciate it. First question, why wine? Why wine? Well, um, you kind of got to go back to probably like maybe the 1980s. And uh, I was in the paper and packaging business. And I went out to meet with a machinery supplier in San Francisco. And he brought a bottle of 1974 Martini Cabernet to dinner. Uh, 74 was a fantastic vintage in California. I had no idea about it at the time. To me, it was a bottle of wine with a guy in a restaurant. But um, it, it was kind of an aha moment that uh, really caused me to understand that wine was something special. Uh, I was probably about 30 at the time, so I wasn't really into wine, but uh, it got my attention. Uh, Fast forward um, a number of years, and I was in more of a sales and marketing role, still in the packaging business, but I was entertaining customers. And if you're entertaining customers, you have the credit card. If you have the credit card, you get the wine list. And I'd look at the wine list, and I was absolutely clueless. So uh, I started studying up on wine. And like many people do, I got hooked and began collecting. Uh, This was probably um, very early 1990-ish. And, um, you know, built a small uh, wine collection and kind of traveled around the world, not literally, but, but through my bottles of wine, uh, you know, working with various wine regions and figuring out what I liked and didn't like. So really my entree to wine was as a collector. Um, you kind of need to pause that story there and uh, go to the Oregon side of it. And that came about because I had a very good friend. I grew up in the Chicago Burbs, and a good friend of mine uh, moved out here and uh, actually was living in Newburgh, Oregon, and we came out to visit him. Uh, When I say we, it was me and my wife, Deb, uh, came out to visit uh, our good friends here in 1994. And it was a beautiful week in the summer in the Willamette Valley, like uh, only the Willamette Valley can produce. And I fell in love with Oregon. And um, it was just kind of an amazing thing. He and I ended up buying a small company in Dundee. It had nothing to do with wine, but it was right smack in the middle of wine country, uh, right on Ninth Street, heading up the hill into all the vineyards. And uh, I started coming out to Oregon more frequently. I had a full-time job in Minneapolis. but. Um, fell in love with Oregon and then began to appreciate Oregon wine. Um, So this would have been around 1995. And um, at that point in time, um, really the Oregon focus was was more dominant. And I said to my wife, Deb, you know, I'd really like to buy a piece of dirt here, a place with a view on a hill. And um, then I started thinking about 
um, what do you do when you sit up on a hill? You can't just sit there all day long going, nice view. So um, that's when the light bulb came on and it's like, hey, they grow grapes here and they make wine and it's good wine and I collect wine and I should at least, if I'm gonna buy dirt and dirt on a hill, I should buy grape dirt. And at the time I told my wife that um, it was just a long-term investment and you know we'd see how it evolved. Um, what I learned is when you buy grape dirt it talks and uh, grape dirt says plant me and I told my wife that you know the dirt was talking and that we needed to plant some and uh, she kind of wondered what happened to the long-term plan because that was about six weeks after I bought the property. So obviously the grape dirt was quite vocal. Um, but uh, we began planting, uh, well, we cleared the land for two years. We bought the property uh, at the beginning of 1997. Uh, it was a 28-acre parcel on the south slope of Parrot Mountain, just a few miles to the east of Newburgh. Um, right above the Willamette River, uh, completely forested, never cleared, never cultivated, uh, very, very rocky, broken volcanic basalt soil. The, the farmer on the hill was kind of laughing at the city people because he knew how much rock was there. And uh, at that time, everybody kind of thought it was just suitable at best for fir trees. Um, so, uh, but we bought it, 28 acres, and uh, began clearing in 1997, cleared it for two years, started planting in 1999, and um, that's, that's how the wine business started. So I'm back up for a minute, we'll pick it back up there in a second. Let's talk a bit about life before wine. You mentioned growing up in Chicago, the suburbs of Chicago. Tell me about sort of life before wine. What was uh, early life education like and what, what, how did you start into the career you started into? Huh. Interesting. Well, I, uh, well, interesting question. It may or may not be interesting to the audience, <laughs> but that's for you to decide. Um, so yeah, uh, Chicago Burbs, uh, you know, got out of high school, moved to uh, upstate New York, went to school, uh, college there. Um, got out of school, moved down to Philadelphia to take a job with a paper and packaging company. Uh, the company I worked for was uh, mostly hired people out of the military. I was one of the few people that came right out of an undergrad program, and so I found myself in a uh, quasi-stodgy paper company with mostly older people, and I was about 22 years old, and I decided that you know if I was going to meet anybody in this new town, I needed to do something other than just work. And uh, so I, I like to ski and I found a job at a ski shop. And um, my future wife, Deb, walked in one day. I sold her a pair of ski boots. And um, you know, we ended up getting married a couple years later and that's, that's how we met up. Um, so we were in Philly for a number of years and then up in New Jersey. Um, and then uh, the phone rang and uh, another paper company out in Ohio uh, hired us and uh, hired me, not us, and we moved to Cincinnati. Um, did that for a few years and then the phone rang again and we ended up uh, taking a job with a leverage buyout company, uh, also paper industry up in Minneapolis, uh, a company by the name of Waldorf Corporation. And uh, we made a lot of packaging for General Mills and Lego toys and uh, a lot of recycled paper. Um, so during that 10-year run or so, I learned a lot about recycling. And uh, ultimately, the uh, 
business that my business partner and I bought out here in Dundee uh, was a recycling business. So it was kind of a, uh, related to that. And, uh, and that's what it got us all going. So you mentioned your visit to, visit to the Wyoming Valley. Uh, tell me about sort of initial impressions of Oregon and, and what made this the place you wanted to, to buy into. Well, you know, we were living in Minneapolis at the time. They like to say the mosquito is a state bird in Minnesota. And so we were immediately taken by the fact that there weren't any of those critters flying around in the summer. It was like, how, do, how did that happen? Um, so that was pretty wonderful. Um, you know, um, the Midwest is also quite humid and hot and sticky. And of course, my wife's from Philly, and the East gets a little bit hot and sticky sometimes. So I was taken by the, the dry climate out here, which uh, at the time I didn't really understand that that's what grapes like too. Um, and um, so that was great. Um, you know, the hills, the fir trees, uh, there's an ocean nearby. Uh, Portland's a pretty neat city. So there, there was a lot to like about Oregon. Uh, the climate, the topography, the, the weather, the restaurant scene. Um, and you know, then eventually the, the wine. Um, I think we were, you know, at the time I was in my early 40s and obviously not thinking about retiring, but you know, um, when you walk outside in Minnesota and it's 20 below zero actual temperature and you're walking on ice that isn't slippery anymore because it's sticky and creaky and people are driving their cars on lakes, you kind of don't have to be too smart to figure out that's not a great retirement plan. <laughs> and uh, so when we discovered Oregon, and uh, of course we hadn't really experienced the rainy winter yet, but uh, we at least knew that the temperatures were sane. Uh, as one of my friends from Minnesota said, you don't need to shovel rain. And uh, so it just seemed like a really nice place to, to orient towards. Um, having said all of that, um, my day job was in Minneapolis. And when we ended up buying the property in 1997 and then clearing it for two years, we actually developed the vineyard for 12 years, commuting back and forth from Minneapolis. And uh, you know, I'd leave the office on a Thursday night, get on a plane, we'd fly out here, we'd meet with the cat driver, we'd clear some property, and I'd fly back on Sunday afternoon, and I'd be in my office Monday morning. And we did that for the better part of 12 years. Um, we did eventually build a small home on the vineyard so that I could uh, hang out there when we were out here. but. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was kind of, my, my wife said, uh, you know, I'm not moving until you show me that this is real. And obviously when you start a vineyard from raw ground, um, it's, it's kind of an eight-year open wallet experience. You just, all you do is spend money for eight years. And there's no income. And um, I learned very early on that unlike you know, for example, selling a building or even a packaging idea. You know, if somebody's going to sell a building, they draw a picture, and they show you what the what what the building's going to look like. Um, same thing with packaging. You know, you can bring in a sample box and find out if that's what the customer wants. You can't do that with wine. I you know, I had friends in the wine business that were distributors, and I went to them and I said, Hey, I'm 
building this vineyard in Oregon. We're going to make great Pinot Noir. You know, would you represent me? And they said, you know, Tom, I know you got a good palate. You like wine. I'm sure you'll make a great product. When you've got wine, come show it to me and I'll let you know. <laughs> and, you know, people want to taste it, and rightfully so. Um, and so you, you can't really build much of a sales plan while you're building out a vineyard. So not only do you spend the eight years clearing the ground, getting the vines in, getting the grapes to grow, um, and then ultimately getting it into a bottle, uh, and, and you know, then you put it in a warehouse and you kind of wait while you sell bottle number one, and then bottle number two and you build the business slowly over a period of time. So uh, we didn't actually move to Oregon until 2009. Um, so, you know, we're looking at, again, 12 years of commuting and building the wine business and the vineyard on the side while I continued to do my day job. So you mentioned sort of your wine education and, and, and building, a, building a palate, building a cellar. Tell me about learning about wine and how, what, what drew you in? What, what, what excited you about learning wine? Well, I think there's a lot of people in the world and, and uh, you know, maybe you can divide them into a few categories. One is, you know, people that just don't drink wine. And or you know they're occasional wine drinkers. Um, then there are people who do do drink wine, but they don't really think about wine. It's another beverage. Um, and then you get into uh, people that take wine seriously. And um, you know if you subdivide those groups, there are a lot of people in that group that. Um, they kind of want to be told what good wine is. You know, they look for a recommendation from a sommelier, they look for a recommendation from a wine critic, whoever they follow. Um, and if somebody says this is what good wine is, uh, whether it got a 95 point score or an enthusiastic friend brought it over and you try it and you like it and you decide that's, that's what you like for good wine. Um, but I think there's a, a a point where your palate evolves and you begin to um, think for yourself about what is it that's really compelling about wine and what is it that you're looking for and do you or don't you agree with certain critics and, and initially if you don't agree you feel like you're wrong because they're critics and they are supposed to know what they're doing. Um, I think over time you develop the confidence to say, you know, it's okay to disagree with a critic. Uh, they have a palate, uh, I have a palate, and we're not seeing the same thing. Um, that's not to say that there isn't good wine and there, that there isn't bad wine. Um, clearly there are both. Um, but, um, you know, within the context of good wine, um, a, a critic can certainly prefer one, and I think a, a, a consumer can prefer another, and that's okay. Um, in terms of my interest, um, you know, I think wine can just do something special at any given moment. It, it, uh, it may be a food pairing. Um, you know, I, to this day, I remember a bottle of Syrah that I had with a Hungarian mushroom soup that was crazy good. Um, and I'm not a big Syrah drinker, but that one particular food pairing was just fantastic. Um, 
And so I think there's wines that, that we all encounter if you get serious about wine and it it speaks to you in sort of a special way. It elevates your palate. It 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 just kind of says I'm special, I'm different, and pay attention. And um, I think that that is clearly what happened. And then, you know, earlier on, I would find, again, in the context of entertaining customers, you know, I'd go out to a restaurant and, you know, I'd get a wine list and I'd buy an old bottle of wine and it wouldn't be very good. And I'd buy an expensive bottle of wine and it wouldn't be very good. And, you know, then randomly I'd come across a bottle of wine that I thought was really great. And so, Understanding there's got to be some rhyme or reason to it and figuring out what that was, um, you know, clearly wasn't just price point and age. Uh, there were other things going on in the wine world that, that defined what ultimately made a good bottle of wine and, and didn't. So you, you, you've gotten the property and, and, the, and the dirt starts, starts talking to you and telling you that it's time to, to plant. So at that point, how prepared did you feel for undertaking that kind of process? And what was your vision for what the place would look like? Um, well, two, two very, very different questions. Um, the, let me do the second one first. The vision was that I really wanted to create an environment that was pleasing to be in. I think initially um, I saw the vineyard as, as a piece of landscaping to some extent, not, not to trivialize it. I mean, it was obviously a vineyard and there were wine aspirations. Um, but the big role was, you know, if you're coming from suburbia, you know, you, and you want to put in a lawn, you call the sad guy and he puts in a lawn and you've got a lawn in a few days and you put in some bushes and, you know, your house is landscaped. When you buy 28 acres of completely raw ground that's got second growth fir stumps, scrub maples, blackberry bushes, poison oak, piles of rocks, uh, and you know there is no view because all of this brush is obscuring the view, and you start thinking about how do you landscape 28 acres of property, um, you know you don't do that with shrubs and bushes and sod, and so it was clear that that a vineyard would play an important cosmetic part uh, of the property. And I think initially, again, what really drew us to Oregon was Oregon. And so um, the first vision was to uh, build a beautiful place, build a place that we wanted to be. Um, a lot of the time uh, we get asked questions, you know, why did we leave the fir trees in the middle of the vineyard here and over here? And we left them there because they look good. Um, you know, and the original people said, well, you're going to want to take them out because the birds are going to sit in the trees, they're going to come down, they're going to eat the fruit. And you know what? They were right. Um, but we, you know, we developed a very aggressive bird control program because we like the trees. And so our real goal was to build a very, very beautiful place to be. Um, what I didn't fully understand and appreciate at the time, I, I think, you know, going back 25 years ago, you know, biodynamic and organic were less prevalent, um, certainly in the mainstream. And, uh, you know, now you hear the term biodiversity quite a bit. 
And when we bought our property, I mean, we had all kinds of biodiversity. Um, poison oak that I learned to respect and appreciate far too many times. Um, you know, fantastic fir trees, of course. Uh, but, you know, we had wild irises growing on the property and, um, you know, just all kinds of stuff. And when you clear raw ground, uh, of course, all the seeds get in the soil, and then, you know, in your second, third, and fourth year, you, you discover what was growing there naturally. And, you know, so we ended up with all kinds of stuff, especially like thistles. Um, and so um, I think that uh, there's this evolutionary process that you go through um, understanding and building the vineyard. So, you know, we started out cosmetically. Um, uh, looking for a beautiful place to be. Um, you know, aspirationally, from a, from a wine business standpoint, as a collector um, and, and also as a business person who traveled a lot, I had a fairly keen awareness that there were wineries all over the country. And I don't mean to, you know, disparage lesser wine regions uh, because, you know, there are people that make some interesting wines and they can be good wines. But most of the time those regions don't make great wines. And as a, as a collector, I had uh, a desire to make great wine. Um, I was never about being the winery that was, you know, close to the city that made most of their money from doing weddings. It's fine. It's a good business model, but I wasn't really looking for a business model. I was looking for um, a very, uh, more of an art form, more of a, uh, I just had a, you know, I had another job, I had another business, and so the wine business for me was less about the business and it was more about the art of trying to make great wine. Um, what I knew from our due diligence on the property, uh, actually kind of a funny story, um, at the very beginning, 1997, I hired a cat driver to clear the property. And um, I was in Minneapolis, and so I'd hired him by phone, and we'd kind of traded some diagrams. And I, I said, if you could kind of clear this little area up uh, where we plan to put the house, it'd be nice to sort of see what's there. And he said, okay, I'll get in there a couple days before you come out for Memorial Day 1997, and I'll, you know, we can take a look at it. So he did that, I met him, and we stood up on the road before we really went down to look at it. And he made the comment, uh, uh, he liked to call me Tommy, and he said, uh, Tommy, I gotta, I gotta tell you something, I couldn't sleep last night. And I hesitate to tell you this, because a guy could lose a good job over what I'm going to say, but I just couldn't sleep. And I feel like i got to let you know, if I was you, I would hire a guy like me to clean this place up a little bit, and I'd go buy a piece of ground with some dirt on it. <laughs> and that's a true story. That's how we started. Uh, John was the first of three cat drivers. Uh, the second cat driver, uh, Jerry, came in and he'd call me up and I'd say, how's it going? He'd go, oh, my kitty, my kitty's getting all beat up on these rocks. And, uh, you know, finally the, the, third, the third cat driver came in and actually finished it up. But, um, you know, the rocks are brutal. And we, uh, we learned a lot about rocks and we learned a lot about development. And, 
you know, but to your question about you know the vineyard aspirations, what I knew from wine collecting is that a lot of the best wines in the world are grown on rocky soils. Uh, whether you're looking at the Rhone or Spain or Burgundy, uh, there's rocks. And uh, over the years, I've I've learned why. I don't think I understood it at the beginning. I knew I didn't understand it at the beginning. I just knew that there was a correlation between good vineyards, good grapes, good wine, and rocks. And uh, and so that's been a learning experience. But you know, aspirationally, my hope was that we could make uh, a very very high quality. Pinot Noir product, um, but also, you know, we were buying property that wasn't surrounded by vineyards. You know, if if you buy a piece of dirt that's right next to somebody who's been farming that dirt for 20 years, yeah, there's a pretty good chance you can go try their wine, and you're going to get a strong indication of what that dirt's going to do. Um, I asked my first vineyard manager. How do you know when you're developing a vineyard from scratch, whether you're creating a Grand Cru vineyard or you're com, com, you know, building a complete dud? And she said, well, it's pretty easy. I said, okay, tell me now, would you? She goes, well, you plant it and you wait 10 years. <laughs> and you know, I, I think really that's kind of what you have to do. Um, I have seen sites that uh, looked like they should have been fantastic. And you know they weren't bad, but they weren't fantastic. And um, you just uh, you have to work with the land, and and frankly, you have to be a little bit lucky. So you mentioned how long it took to get this cleared and get this ready. So tell me about that sort of time for you. Where were you? Did you remain confident this would work? Were there times when you wished you hadn't done it? Where, where, where were you kind of mentally as the process was going on in the, in the 90s and 2000s? So, yeah, um, probably the best way to illustrate that was uh, we were, so we, we bought the property in 97, cleared it for two years. We started planting in 99 which meant that we would have had small vines and grow tubes in the ground in 1999. They would have been a year old in 2000, two years old in 2001. Um, and again, I, I mentioned the eight-year um, sort of out-of-pocket adventure that you take on when you start building a vineyard from scratch on raw ground. And uh, we were about five years into it. And by that time, we'd built a small house in the vineyard, and I was up there. Uh, writing a bunch of checks for different services, things we'd done. And uh, my wife said, you know, all you ever do is write checks. Nothing ever comes out of this place. It's really just a black hole. And I said, yeah, you're right. You know, I said, that's kind of got a nice ring to it. Why don't, you know, what I had learned from my accountant is that there's value in having a farming business that is separate. <clears throat> excuse me, separate from a wine business. And so um, we had actually two companies where you grow the fruit in one company and you sell the fruit to the other company. Um, and uh, I thought, you know, why don't we call it Black Hole Vineyard? And so uh, we did. And then I started worrying a little bit that that might be kind of a red flag for the IRS. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I pulled it down to BHV LLC, uh, which we work with to 
to this day. But um, if you find one of the earlier vineyard maps that were printed of the valley back when there were very relatively few vineyards, um, I think uh, Tina's used to have one hanging on the wall. I don't know if it's still there. If you look at the south slope of Parrot Mountain where we are, you will see a vineyard labeled Black Hole. Um, and that was courtesy of my wife uh, watching me write checks. Um, the, um, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of another time where what would happen is, because we were in Minneapolis, we'd come, we'd visit the vineyard, we'd fly home, we'd come back. We're up on a hill, it's fairly windy. Uh, the initial plantings, we had uh, bamboo stakes that were too thin with grow tubes that were too tall. And so when you put tall grow tubes on a thin stake and the wind blows, it breaks the stakes off. And so we would go back to Minneapolis and we'd come back um, two weeks or a month later and all the baby grapevines would be laying on the ground, you know, inside the grow tube. And, uh, you know, one of the things I've learned over the years is grapes are pretty durable. And, you know, you can set them back up. But of course, we would come back not knowing anything about planting a vineyard and we'd be somewhat horrified to see all of our little grapevines laying on their sides, you know, thinking that they were dead, you know, and uh, I, I didn't realize at the time they were just sleeping. And so I needed to wake them up and we got them all going and life was good. But, you know, it was around that time where I had some visitors come and uh, I sort of, you know, shook my head and I said, yeah, I don't know if this is a good idea or not. But I said, one of the problems that I have is, what do you do in life when you sell the vineyard? Um, you know, and I think that's a big problem. If you're, if you're into grapes, um, and you're into wine, and you're taking on a project like this, there aren't a whole lot of things you can do that are really more exciting than that. You know, I've, I've owned a couple of small businesses. I've worked in companies. Some have been successful. Some have been unsuccessful. I've, you know, sold good stuff. I've had good orders. None of that is exciting, is anywhere near as exciting and intriguing and engaging as trying to make world-class wine. Because Mother Nature throws you a curveball, you know, every year you get a new pitch. And you, you have to try to figure out how to hit it. Um, and, you know, the, the experience helps a lot because sometimes, you know, she, she throws a pitch that's kind of like the pitch she threw before and you, you kind of see it coming. Um, you know, the first 10 years or 15 years going around, they're all new pitches and you don't, you don't see patterns too much. Um, but it makes, it, it makes every year new and exciting. And um, that is, is fun. I found in a lot of my other business activities that um, you know, I would get excited at the beginning and then I'd lose interest. And I, my attention span you know, over an extended period of time was, was limited. It became more routine. And, you know, to this day, really, we're, you know, we're over 25 years in the vineyard development process and we're, we just, you know, had our 20th anniversary at the wine level. 
Um, you know, people ask me, how long have you been in the business? And I go, well, if you ask my wife, it's when I wrote the first check. So from my wife's perspective, we've been in the business, you know, 26 years now. Um, if you want to know when I sold my first bottle of wine, that was eight years later, you know. So we've been in the wine marketing business for, you know, 18 coming on 20 years. And if you look at it from a winemaking standpoint, it's 20 years. So, um, you know, over time, you learn some things. But what I've really learned is that it, it's a unique business. Um, it, you know, it's not all fun and games. Um, there are ups and downs and problems and issues, and you have to deal with those. Um, and when you sell wine, um, it's very, very transactional. Um, you know, in my other jobs, I'd get on the phone with a big company, DuPont, and we'd talk for an hour and I'd get an order for two truckloads and, you know, we'd send out, you know, $80,000 worth of product. You know, in the wine business, you get on the phone and talk for two hours and somebody maybe buys a $25 bottle, you know, um, or maybe not. And so it's, it's a very different kind of a business. Um, but it's engaging. And I think, you know, from a vision standpoint, my hope was to, to do something great that people would appreciate um, that would also be true to the land, that would be, you know, vineyard-derived. Uh, and we've done a number of things in the vineyard to, to try to bring that into uh, reality. Well, let's talk about that next. So obviously the vineyard took, took time to take shape. So tell me about the decisions you made to plant what you planted, where you planted it, and then sort of getting to know the vineyard as it started to mature. So making the transition from a wine collector to a grape grower, um, especially when you have no farming or viticultural background or education or experience. I mean, my degree was in economics, you know, and it has very little to do with Black Hole Vineyard. Obviously, it's kind of the, the complete opposite. Um, but um, the, you know, I did what a lot of people do um, that come to the industry with passion and enthusiasm and complete ignorance. Um, and that I, I relied on thoughts and opinions from winemakers and friends that I had gotten to know as I would traveled to Oregon and collected wine and tried their wines. Um, I hired people that knew what they were doing, whether it be clearing or planting or, you know, viticulture. Um, but. Um, there's a there's a point kind of there's there's a point in a vineyard that's a lot like the evolution of a palate on the wine side where I was talking about developing your own palate and your own opinions and being okay in disagreeing with people and um, initially you know I would talk with a lot of winemakers and I'd say you know if you're planting a vineyard what clones would you plant and what spacing would you use? And you know, just kind of picking their brains. And my approach to that was, if I heard the same thing five times from five people, I took it as pretty much truth and knowledge, something that you know was generally accepted practice. If I heard, uh, you know, three different things from five people, I took it as opinion, and that that 
was open to debate and something to be studied further and learned. Um, when, you know, when I talked with people about spacing uh, of, you know, vine rows, um, you know, the old footprint in Oregon, uh, vine rows would be quite wide. Um, I don't know, nine feet maybe, something like that, to get a great big honking tractor through. And the vines in the vine row were five, six feet apart maybe. I, you know, I think early spacing footprints were maybe eight, nine hundred vines to the acre. I don't know exactly, but, you know, fairly spaced out. Um, and then there were, of course, a few people, you know, by that time I had met, for example, John Thomas, who was early on and had planted a meter by a meter. And, um, but I talked with some other people that had had a little bit of experience with meter by meter. You know, when Domaine Druon came in, they put in meter by a meter because that's what you do in Burgundy. And um, there were some folks who said that for Oregon's uh, humidity and, and a variety of issues, I mean, for example, if you do meter by a meter, your, your vines need to be kept very short. If you keep the vines short to have the proper leaf area, you gotta have your wire very close to the ground. If the wire is very close to the ground, all your workers have to bend over. And, you know, people were saying it's kind of hard to get people excited about picking fruit that's a foot off the ground. And so there were some practical considerations that were emerging from people who had worked with some of the more extreme footprints in either direction. Um, I pretty much settled on what seems to have become a standard, which is five by seven, um, seven feet between the vine rows and five feet between the vines within the row. Um, but, you know, I kind of took a slightly whimsical and arguably stupid approach. Um, I figured since the plants were ultimately French, they would be more comfortable with a metric system. So uh, we ended up planting two meters by a meter and a half just to confuse everybody. So we're actually around six and three quarters by four and some feet. Um, and you know, the vines were happy. They, they, they've never actually told me that, but I just kind of sensed that they liked being on a metric footprint. And um, you know, practically speaking, when we, when we look out you know, 20 years later, um, you know, we have, I mean, two meters by a meter and a half translates to 1,349 vines per acre. Um, five by seven is in the neighborhood of 1250, I think, something like that. Um, so there's like 8% more vine density in two meters by a meter and a half. Um, and that's, that's served us well sometimes, you know, you get a little bit more fruit from the ground. Um, where we have thin soils with the rock, um, sometimes the vines won't fill up the distance on the wire, so having everything a little bit tighter um, has worked out well. Um, but, you know, then you get into the question of what to plant. And so, you know, I've, I've answered the question of the configuration. Um, you know, the, when I talk to people about clonal material, 
Um, back then, of course, the two traditional, uh, just call them stalwart heirloom uh, varietal, not varietals, I'm sorry, uh, clones or selections were Pomard and Vadensville. And, um, you know, with a heavy bias going towards Pomard, but with a number of proponents for Vadensville. Um, and by that time, uh, you know, the, the Dijon clones had come into the, the Oregon system, if you will, um, primarily the 113, 114, 115 series. Um, when we planted the, um, the 667 and 777 were just coming in. Um, I don't hear it too much, but somebody once referred to them as the Boeing clones because they sound like airplanes. And uh, I always kind of liked that. Um, so we, we were fortunate to get hold of the so-called Boeing clones very early on. Um, and I worked with Alan Holstein, who had been farming uh, with Argyle and Domaine Druan, and, and uh, he was able to provide some plant material. I remember having a conversation with Alan about road direction. We talked about the footprint and the spacing, and I kind of settled on that. And I talked about planning north and south, and Alan said to me, have you ever been to Burgundy? And I said, no. Uh, he said, well, if you go to Burgundy and you look at all the Grand Cru vineyards, you'll find that the rows are planted in every sort of direction, in every which way. And he said, you know, I've heard the theory that you want to plant north-south so that you get equal sun exposure on both sides of the vine. But he said, when I went to Burgundy, I could tell you that those vines didn't read that book. Uh, and they make really great fruit. So, you know, Alan's view at the time was, mm, yeah, I mean, road directions were thinking about, but he pointed to a number of real-world examples where Grand Cru fruit was produced from uh, road directions that were other than north-south. So um, I think that was kind of interesting. Um, when I did the survey of the winemakers, um, everybody pretty much agreed that Pomard was a rock star. And so Pomard figured into what we wanted to plant. Um, at the time, rootstocks, uh, you know, 3309 and 101.14 were sort of the the typical <clears throat> low vigor rootstocks to plant. Um, RG, Riparia Guar, was, uh, I think, increasingly becoming popular, but um, it was described to me as not being very drought tolerant and growing in rocky soils. So that never seemed like a really great idea. Um, so our initial plantings were. Uh, the Boeing clones, 667 and 777, uh, and Pomard on uh, 10114 and 3309. Um, what I found, though, you know, I mentioned how you, in, as a wine taster, your palate evolves. But in vineyard development, I think your knowledge and your interests and your curiosity also evolves much the way your palate evolves. And, um, what I was finding is that when you work with vineyard management companies, they rightfully are risk adverse. You know, they don't want a client coming in from Minneapolis or Chicago or whatever, and they say, you know, build me a vineyard. And then they come back a month later and go, I'm sorry, it died. 
<laughs> you know, that's not a good message, you know. Or, gee, you know, five years later, yeah, you know, we thought at the time we'd try these all these different clones and rootstocks, and you know, the problem is they're not setting any fruit, or they set too much fruit and it's all awful and it's not getting right. I mean, if you're a vineyard management company, those are messages that you don't want to deliver to your client. And so as a result, you, you tend to get, if you're relying on people that, that have a need to give you something that's predictable, you tend to get standard things that are predictable. And that can be a very, very good thing. Um, it's, it, you know, predictability can be really good, especially when you're spending a lot of time and money. And, you know, with vineyards, you don't get to change it quickly. I mean, we have changed some things, but, you, you know, it's like my original vineyard manager said, you plant it and you wait 10 years. So you don't, you don't make changes quickly. And when you do, they're expensive on a lot of different ways, loss production. And so, so you want to you want to play the game uh, intelligently, but then you know there's this thing in the back of your head that says, "But wait a minute! If you're trying to make the best wine, you know what is what are they growing to make Grand Cru Burgundy? What you know are they are they planting the same clones or you know how does that work? Are they why are these wines selling for $5,000 a bottle other than the fact that you know they've been working on it for 500 years and they've got an insane reputation and they don't make very much. But, um, but I think you, you kind of have to ask that question if, you're, if your aspirations are high, the question needs to become will vanilla get you there? And I ran into that problem um, probably about five, six, seven years into the process where it was very clear that we were planting the same rootstocks, farming them the same way with the same clones of Pinot Noir that everybody else was farming. And yet when I looked out at a number of producers that um, I truly admired, they weren't necessarily doing that. I'm not saying they weren't, but they were doing some other things. And I began uh, uh, a quest uh, that I guess turned into an adventure, that sort of turned into uh, a philosophy and ultimately turned into grapes and wine. And that was, uh, I, I was finding that a lot of the wines that I really enjoyed personally were not made from the typical Dijon Pomard combinations. Um, you know, Pomard has sort of this reputation of being this fantastic clone, and we made some wine for a client once that said, I just want Pomard. I want 100% Pomard. And I said, okay, you know, so we picked Pomard for her, and we fermented, and we had it in barrel, and brought her over, and I said, okay, here's 100% Pomard. Here's Pomard blended with some other clones. Oh, well, yeah, let's not make all Pomard. Let's, <laughs> let's make a blended clone wine. And so, you know, and, the, and of course we experimented with, you know, fermenting clones individually a la Pomard or, you know, 66777 to kind of understand what their identities were. But then we also began fermenting uh, 
mixed clones, uh, clonal diversity in single fermenters. And you know, we just consistently found that co-fermented clones were more interesting than individual clones. And, and even if you were to replicate the exact uh, you know, let's just say you did a third, a third, a third, Pomard, six, six, seven, 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 and you fermented them separately, and then you brought them all together, a third, a third, a third. I don't know that I've ever actually run that test, but my perception is is that if you put a third, a third, a third of the fruit in the fermentation tank and you co-ferment them, you'll end up with a better wine than you will if you do it at the winemaker level where you bring them all together. Um, and so there were some learning curves there, uh, but also I think uh, the wines that I was really liking were a lot of wines that were coming from uh, the Sonoma Coast in California and were being made by people that had uh, uh, emerging reputations that were uh, large, uh, you know, Ted Lemon at Literai and, you know, not so much in Pinot, but guys like David Ramey and Eric Sussman at Radio Coteau. And, um, you know, I always liked uh, Joe Swan, Rod, Rob Berglund, we were making great wines, Steve Kistler. Um, and so there was a lot, there were a lot of things happening in California that to me were interesting. And um, I started going down to California. Um, I, I had the good fortune of actually back in Minneapolis, a friend of mine who was a wine collector convinced David Ramey that it was a good idea to come to Minneapolis and do a wine dinner. Um, and my friend Craig thought it would be a good idea if he sat me next to David at the wine dinner, which probably wasn't a good idea for David because every time he tried to take a bite of food, I'd ask him a question. And it was usually a viticultural question. And uh, I remember he brought a bottle of, of uh, Cabernet called Pedregal which, uh, of course, is rock-related. And to me, that was very interesting. <clears throat> we were talking about that particular vineyard. But he said, you really need to meet a guy who's uh, my viticulturalist, a guy by the name of Daniel Roberts. And uh, Daniel um, has a couple of PhDs. Uh, he's a controversial character down in the California wine scene. There's people who just think Daniel's amazing. Uh, and love him, and he's got many, many, many great friends. There are a handful of people that, um, you know, Daniel's not without his opinions, and uh, there are people who've had other opinions, and so they maybe don't agree as much. And so, uh, but, you know, Daniel's from Connecticut. When we met him, uh, David introduced us. He kind of looks like Moses with shorts, and, uh, he uh, in sneakers, uh, at least that's how I envisioned Moses would look. I don't know how Moses actually looked. I never really met him, but uh, but Daniel, uh, being from Connecticut, I think hit it off pretty well. With my wife being from Philly, they kind of you know spoke the same sort of Eastern dialect, I think, and um, and so we became pretty good friends. And he introduced me to a whole lot of people. Um, you know, Larry Hyde, Rod Berglund, a um, number of winemakers. Uh, of course, Daniel had a lot of knowledge himself. And um, ultimately, what we ended up doing is planting uh, what I refer to as heritage clones. 
and uh, you know these were different selections of Calera, Swan, Mount Eden, Hanzel. Um, of course, the big challenge, Oregon has always been fanatical, uh, rightfully so, about having clean plants. And so the challenge was how do we find these old clones and find clean representations of them that were still um, accurate and, I mean, true to, to what they, to, true to the clones that they actually are, uh, which is to say that they hadn't been processed so much in the lab that you weren't quite sure that what you were getting was really a distant relative of what you thought you were getting. Um, so that began uh, a long adventure to acquire uh, those different clones, and we ultimately planted them. I didn't know how they would do. Um, and so, you know, I, as I spoke to the idea that, you know, um, vineyard management companies like predictability, um, five, six, seven years into it, around 2006, seven, after I was doing all the research on the heirloom clones or the heritage clones, you know, we moved into this phase of unpredictability, where we were bringing up uh, plant material that had not been widely planted in Oregon, and uh, began a whole new learning curve. Uh, Daniel also imparted some ideas on how to clear rocky clear and prep rocky soil, uh, ripping on vine rows, uh, which was something that um, <clears throat> when I first did it, Matt Peel said, well, I've heard about doing that, and we thought about doing it once, or maybe he said we did it once, but you would, at, at most, you would be the second person to do it. And so we, uh, you know, we laid out a piece of the vineyard, we chalked out the vine rows like you would with a baseball diamond where you put chalk down, and then we brought a big cat in with a big shank and we ripped right on the vine row, because uh, there's so much rock that if you did traditional ripping, you'd just end up with a quarry. So, you know, we ripped on the vine row, which cuts a nice trench, and then you get all the boulders, I call them dinosaur eggs, you get the dinosaur eggs out of the trench, you backblade it, and you come back and you plant on the vine row, and then you end up with plants that all grow the same because you haven't planted them on top of a dinosaur egg. And uh, right next to it, we have a block where we didn't do that, and it looks kind of flea-bitten because there are you know vines that are planted on top of big rocks. Um, so a lot of learning going on there, but I, I would say a major evolution from the hey, build me a vineyard, you know, I'm the guy from out of town, to then beginning to understand that we were doing everything exactly like everybody else was doing it. And then the wine collector in me sort of began to question, are we really on a, on a trajectory to make the very best possible wine that we can make? And that really led me to some other places and different plant material, different planting, different farming, um, and then ultimately some changes in the winemaking front. So you mentioned that that kind of evolution of the, of the vineyard part. Tell me about the wine as you started to make it. What, what were you seeing in the initial results of the wine and, and how involved were you in the winemaking? What, what was sort of the process of making the wine like at that point? So, of course, during the first 12 years, we were commuting back and forth. And um, 
I had transitioned fairly early on from a corporate job to my own business. So um, I had the ability to play hooky, which meant that you know I could I could be here for harvest. But you know the reality is is uh, kind of shows you how bright we are. We we were still living in Minnesota, and so we would come to Oregon for the summer and go back to Minnesota for the winter. Uh, yeah, I know, kind of dumb as a stone, but um, we, you know, we would go through harvest, and then you know we'd go back to Minnesota, which meant that the winemaking, by and large, was left in the hands of my winemakers. Um, what we had evolved into was. Uh, a winemaking platform that was comparatively unique. Um, because of the variability of the clones and the soils and the aspect in the vineyard, um, the east side was quite cool. The west side was very rocky. Uh, we had a lot of clonal diversity. Um, our initial winemaker, <clears throat> 2002 and 2003, uh, we made wine at DuPont. Um, Isabel Dutart was uh, our winemaker, and uh, Isabel was fantastic and made some great wine for us in 02 and 03, and we just made one wine. Um, beginning in 04, a couple things happened. Uh, DuPont uh, was filling up, and um, Scott and Ray Baldwin said, you know, we can't really make all your wine. We don't have space. and um, so I began to reach out and, and look for some other folks to make wine. And um, I had developed friendships with some, some really great winemakers. Uh, Harry Peterson Nedry at Shehalem was, uh, had become a, a good friend and, and a bit of a mentor. Um, Josh Bergstrom I was introduced to by uh, Sam Tannehill and his wife Cheryl Francis. I had met Cheryl when she was at Shehalem and then she married Sam and through Cheryl I met Sam and through Sam I met Josh. And so <clears throat> initially I talked with Cheryl and Sam about making my wine beginning in 2004 and they were just getting started with their brands A to Z and uh, Francis Tannehill and um, the, their projects that they were doing. And they were enthusiastic and they said, sure, we'd love to make your wine. And then they called about a month later and they said, uh, we just did our production plan and we don't have space to make all your wine. We can make one tank. And I said, okay, do you have any other ideas as to who might also make some wine for me? And they said, well, why don't you talk to our friend Josh Bergstrom? And you know, Josh was just getting started and I went to see Josh. And he said, well, I'm, I'm interested, I'd like to make your wine, but we're thinking about building out our barrel room and the family hasn't made a decision on that yet. And if we do, then yes, I'll have space. But if we don't, then I won't be able to do it because I won't have space. And I said, well, when are you going to know? And he said, oh, about a month. And I said, okay. So I, I was out ahead of it enough that a month wasn't a huge problem, but uh, during the, the course of waiting a month, I went to my friend Harry and said, you know, hey, Harry, I know you don't make wine for other people, but 
I wouldn't want to have my fruit go to someplace else. And Harry had been very, very helpful at the beginning when I was looking at the site. And he was excited about the rocks. And, and um, you know, we went walking through the, the trees and just looked at test holes before anything was even cleared. And Harry had given me some guidance. And, and so I said, you know, before I send my fruit to somebody else, I wouldn't want you to wish that you maybe could have made some wine for me. So I'm expecting you to say no, but I'm, I'm asking if you want to make some. He goes, well, you're right. I don't make wine for other people, but I'll make an exception because I'm really curious about the rocks. And so let's make a tank. Literally the next day, Josh Bergstrom called and said, hey, we're building our barrel room. We'll make all your wine. I said, well, I just agreed to make a tank with Sam and a tank with Harry, and I can do two tanks with you. Okay, we'll do two tanks. So I ended up with Harry Peterson Nedry, Sam Tannehill, and Josh Bergstrom making wine for me beginning in 2004. And then the next question was, which parts of the vineyard do you guys want and why? And I expected to have a train wreck. <clears throat> and what really happened was just incredible serendipity. Um, in 04, we were just coming off of 03. It's funny how that works. And one of my smarter statements. And uh, yeah, tune in. You can get some other wisdom here. And, and then we had 05. Um, but uh, <clears throat> so we were just coming off of 03. And 03 was a very, very uh, warm vintage. And Josh said, I like the fact that you're higher elevation. Uh, we're up between 600 and 750 feet. Um, and it'll be cooler. And he said, I'd like the coolest part of the vineyard. I like the idea of long hang time and slower ripening. I said, OK, well, that'll be the east side, uh, because we have trees all along the eastern edge up over there. And you can see the shadow coming down, maybe. I think it's in there. And, um, and that shades the vineyard in the morning. And so it's the cooler part of the vineyard. And we created a cuvee from that section called Codes, east side. Uh, and Josh Bergstrom made that wine beginning in 2004. Um, <clears throat> then I went to Harry. And I said, what do you want? And he said, I want the rocks. And the rocks are on the west side. And so we created a cuvee called Rochelle, um, literally rocks. Um, and then I went to Sam. And I figured he was going to either want rocks or cold. And he said, I think what you're doing with all your diverse clones is really interesting. And I want the maximum number of clones that you can give me. And so there's a block up on the north side over here above the house that has five clones on four rootstocks and another clone on each side. And so we created a cuvee called Diversite, which is a diverse mix of actually seven clones on five rootstocks in three different parcels. Uh, one faces east, one faces southwest, and one is south. So it's a diverse mix of clones, soils, rootstocks, and aspect. And that all went into Diversite. And so I had these three great winemakers working with three different parts of the vineyard. And uh, <clears throat> it was a great way to get started. Um, the, uh, um, it, was, it, was, it was great to work with a range of incredible talent. 
um, because while they had some overlap, they also had different ways of doing things. Um, you know, Harry, for example, I learned very early on, um, if you had a rainstorm coming in and the fruit was 90% of the way there, Harry would typically be biased in favor of fruit integrity. He didn't want to bring in a bunch of mush with waterlogged fruits and popped berries and all of the issues you get into when it rains. Um, oppositely, I found that Sam was probably at the other end of the spectrum, and Sam was all about ripe tannins and hang time. Again, now I'm back in, you know, <clears throat> 2004 vintage, so we're, you know, we're looking back 20 years. I don't know to what extent Sam and Harry and Josh have <clears throat> fine-tuned and adjusted. Um, you know, 20 years is a long time, but going back then, you know, there was a time where, of course, I was an anxious newbie grower making wine. And, you know, I wanted to get the fruit ripe, but Harry had already picked. And so I thought, well, okay, if Harry said it's ripe, we should, it should be ready. And I called Sam up and I said, hey, I think, you know, we could pick your section. <clears throat> and he came up and he looked at it and he goes, oh, no, it's, it's not ready. I mean, you need another at least 10 days, maybe two weeks. And that seemed like eternity when you're watching, you know, leaves turn yellow and fall off the vines and rain is knocking on the door and things like that. And especially when you've already had another really good winemaker pick. And so I called Sam back about a week later and I said, you know, Sam, there's one section down in the racks. And I said, you know, I, I kind of think we're ready to pick because all the leaves have fallen off the vines. And there's just these grape clusters hanging there like ornaments. And Sam, in probably one of the classic, you know, understatements, said, yeah, well, if the leaves are gone, we're probably done. <laughs> and so we, we got around to picking that fruit. But, uh, you know, but it was great early on learning uh, from, again, three really good winemakers that, you know, there's different ways of doing things, and that uh, there's not necessarily a right way. There are a lot of stylistic ways, uh, and they lead you to different places. And it was great for me to work with these guys for a number of years because um, I learned a lot from all of them. Um, when uh, you fast forward to the 07, 08 time frame, and um, Harry um, was working with Bill Stoller by that time and had a lot going on and they were running out of space. Josh was uh, building a, a good reputation and, and ramping up his own brand and he was running out of space and he tossed all of his clients out at the end of 07. Um, and, uh, you know, Sam had started uh, A to Z, Rex Hill, and they were ramping up and, you know, making a couple hundred cases for, um, look at it, <clears throat> excuse me, making a couple hundred cases for Le Cadeau was not in the cards for any of them. And so from 07 to 08, we turned over all of our winemakers. And um, I had met a through a, a mutual friend had met Jim Sanders, who 
uh, learned all of his winemaking from Mike Etzel at Beaufrere. Uh, Jim's actually a clinical psychologist by day, um, and uh, uh, I think a parent, a husband, and a father by night and weekend. And in between that, he figures out how to make quite a bit of wine. And uh, but we started working together uh, when Jim was really just getting going back in oh three or four when he worked with with Mike at Beaufrere. Um, he. Uh, had made a little bit of wine that was his own, and I tried a bottle of that, and I liked it. And I said, "Well, why don't we, you know, why don't we make a tank together?" And so we started working together in '06. And then when Josh and Harry and Sam all departed in '7 and '8, Jim took on a, a slightly bigger portion. Uh, but about the same time, um, early on in my wine collecting days, I had gone down to California and visited Martinelli. Um, not the Martinelli sparkling people, but the Martinelli people that are fantastic multiple generation growers in Healdsburg, and had met, uh, well, had been introduced through a wine shop in Minneapolis to Steve Ryan, who was their original winemaker. And uh, Steve was from Minnesota and had migrated to California right after getting out of University of Minnesota and, and was making wine there. And he was the first winemaker at Martinelli back around 93, 94. <coughs> Excuse me. And, uh, and the Martinelli family had hired Helen Turley uh, to be their consultant. And so Steve and Helen were really the people that put Martinelli on the map. Um, I had coincidentally bumped into Steve back in Minnesota at the, at the wine shop that had introduced us, and I brought in a handful of our 04 Pinots that we had just bottled, and I was tasting them with the wine shop manager, and Steve walked in. He was back in Minneapolis for the holidays, and he really liked the Pinot. And he said, yeah, I really like making Pinot. Um, I haven't, he had left Martinelli by that time and, and was doing his own biodynamic project down in Mendocino. And uh, he said, I really miss making Pinot. I'd love to make Pinot. And I went back to Oregon and about three weeks later, Josh told me that he couldn't make wine for me. And um, the others were beginning to, to unravel as well. And um, and so I called Steve up and I said, if I can get the fruit down to you in California, would you make one of my cuvées? And by that time, I had kind of gotten accustomed to the idea that Codest was Codest and Diversité was Diversité and Rochelle was Rochelle. And uh, so I, I shipped fruit down to Steve in California beginning in 2007, and he started making Codest um, in California and uh, continued to do that for a number of years. Uh, Jim Sanders uh, took over um, a couple of cuvées, uh, and we also created another one. Um, and then uh, when I started moving Steve's Fruit to California, I met Jacqueline Yoakum, who had been Ted Lemon's assistant at Literac. And Jacqueline had left Literac, and I asked her if she would want to make some wine. And she said, sure. And since I had learned how to ship fruit to California from Steve, I just put another truck together and sent it to Jacqueline. And so uh, Jacqueline took over uh, Rochot that Harry had made. Um, and Steve took over Codes that Josh had made. And then Diversite, um, I ended up moving to Scott Schull at Raptor Ridge. 
And so Scott made Diversité. Uh, Jim Sanders was making a cuvee that was uh, a newly producing part of the vineyard that we called Equinox. Um, and so I had the four winemakers then. And, uh, and then being ever curious, uh, in 2008, Tony Reinders uh, left Domaine Serene. And uh, we decided to collaborate on a, on a project that I named Serendipity. And uh, we created another cuvee called Serendipity in 2008 that was a, from a particular part of the vineyard that, uh, that Tony made. So in 08, we, we peaked at five winemakers. But you know, all of them were, in their own way, either current or emerging rock stars in the wine world. I mean, they were fantastic winemakers. And again, it was an opportunity to learn more and more and more from each of these individuals. And I found, you know, working with Steve and Jacqueline in California, um, we got away from a little bit of what makes Oregon great, which is the collaborative nature. But one of the downsides of the collaborative nature is that you tend to get a lot of the same ideas in Oregon. And so by making some wine in California, we were getting some other uh, ideas that were coming from you know people that were running in different circles and being influenced in different ways. Um, so um, uh, I fairly quickly learned that five winemakers is too many. Um, but we did it for a couple of years, and it was interesting. Um, and then over the years, we, we pared it down. And ultimately, um, we've divided the different cuvées between Steve Ryan and Jim Sanders. And um, Steve and Jim and I have worked together since 2006, 2007. So you know, coming close to 20 years now. Uh, in 2014, Steve moved to Oregon, um, which made it a lot easier to ship fruit to him. I only have to ship it to McMinnville, uh, which is great. And uh, the um, and you know they they each divide the cuvées between them. Uh, Steve makes Codest. We do an entry wine called Red Label. Steve makes that wine. Uh, we began making some sparkling in 2011. Steve makes the sparkling. Um, we began producing Chardonnay in 2017. Jim Sanders makes the Chardonnay. Um, and um, <clears throat> I worked with Scott Schull through 2014. And, uh, and then Jim took over making Diversité. Uh, Jacqueline Yoakum made Richaud from 08 through 12. And then Jim took over Richaud in 2013. Um, I mentioned earlier the heritage of the heirloom clones. Um, we've, we've kept those largely as a separate cuvee. Um, they were planted differently. We changed the spacing a little bit. We did the ripping on the vine rows. We went from two meters to one meter. Still metric, so the plants were happy. But uh, you know, we went from a meter and a half down to a meter, so around 2,100 vines to the acre. Um, and the heirloom clones and you know Daniel Roberts had encouraged us to try some different rootstocks. Uh, 420A, low vigor, tight spacing, uh, works well. Uh, horrible for grafting, but um, interesting to grow with. 
Um, so we had a different collection of clones and vineyard management layout, and we created a whole new cuvee around that that was sort of the next generation of Le Cadeau products, and, and I named it Merci. Uh, which was my way of saying thank you to all of the people that made it possible. Um, and, you know, there's too many of them to really even count. But, I mean, obviously Daniel Roberts was among them, David Ramey, who introduced me. Um, I learned along the way that with some of the heirloom clones, Mary Edwards down in California had been instrumental in taking cuttings from Mount Eden and putting them into UC Davis and getting the viruses out. Uh, Rod Berglund at Swan, Larry Hyde, I mean, these are all people that had their fingerprints on heirloom clones or heritage clones in one way or another. And, you know, and I'd, I'd, frankly, I'd be really remiss if I didn't mention Tony Soder, because as a wine collector, one of the real aha moments to me that helped me understand plant material, I mean, part of it was regional. Um, but when Tony was involved at Etude down in California, he made a Pinot Noir called Heirloom. And he, he was always quite tight-lipped on multiple occasions about actually what was in it. Um, but, you know, it was basically a collection of plant material that did not include the usual suspects that we were growing up here. And, uh, and, uh, you know, kind of like a news reporter interviewing a politician, I asked him one day, I said, well, if you, if you had Calera Swan Mount Eden, would you be in the right ballpark? He said, yeah, you'd have it covered pretty well, you know, but leaving the door open for some other magic clones that he'd come across that, that he rightfully chose not to talk about. Um, and, uh, but, you know, he, the wine was fantastic, and it aged really well. I mean, I recently opened a bottle that was 20 years old, and it, it was fantastic wine. And of course, you know, Tony's an amazing winemaker, but you know, he was also, I think, very forward-thinking in the development of that product. Um, and it, it, I think, helped me in that phase of wine collecting understand that there were different ways of going about things and that vanilla wasn't necessarily going to get me where I wanted to be. Um, so Merci was really my second generation project, if you will, where I brought together all of these different things that, you know, being in the business for about 10 years at that point from a, as both a grower and a collector and a collaborator on the winemaking side of things. Um, that all came together really in that one wine. Um, you know, how does it differentiate? Well, immediately, I mean, <clears throat> Merci has a different aromatic profile than the other wines. It's much more floral. Um, and I can only conclude that that is plant material related, clonally related, because the same winemakers do the same thing with the other plants from the same vineyard, and they don't come out the same way. So um, there's something there that I think is unique and interesting. Um, and, and the critics have been fond of that wine uh, as well. It consistently does usually a point or two better than the others. Um, so I think that, that was a good learning experience. Um, 
along the way, uh, again with my wine collector hat on, I was finding that personally I was enjoying wines that had fairly high percentages of whole cluster fermentation. Um, I, when I collected, I used to drink a lot of Italian wines, and you know, if they have enough tannin to peel the enamel off your teeth, it's it's okay. You know, it's not all bad. Um, it's hard to sell that wine to everybody because most people like to keep the enamel on their teeth. But um, but I, you know, I liked the spicy, slightly herbal character, and especially the aromatics that you would get out of whole cluster, and so. Um, Steve Ryan and I created a wine called Trajet, uh, Trajectory, Journey, Path, um, a new adventure, um, and basically did a 100% whole cluster. Um, did it in a two-ton wood tank. Um, Steve had oriented down in California very much in a biodynamic direction. Um, and so the idea of doing a whole cluster wood tank, native yeast, throw it in, make it happen, let the, let the grapes do their thing was very appealing to Steve. Uh, but it was really funny because he hadn't done a whole cluster wine before and we did 100% whole cluster. And so basically he looked in the top of the tank and he saw a produce stand. You know, there was, there was no juice. And he turned to me, he goes, now what do I do? And I said, well, hey, you're the winemaker. You figure it out. But it's not the first whole cluster wine that we've ever made. and. Uh, so he learned to, uh, you know, obviously with that much weight on the, the fruit, they, the bottom ones get crushed and he got a little juice off and started doing pump overs and, you know, it's worked well. But um, so, you know, the, the next second generation wine that we created was Trujet. And then, uh, and that's been interesting and being 100% whole cluster, it's, it's quite a different product. Um, and I use a little bit of the, the uh, heritage clone plant material um, about 50-50 uh, with the other material. So it's, it's different not only from a whole cluster standpoint, but also plant material. Um, the, um, and the last phase really, uh, I'd call it phase three, is um, back in 2015. Um, I was still Still kind of trying to figure out if there was more to grab, you know, what, what had we left on the table? And uh, although Steve and Jim are super smart people and fantastic winemakers and collectively between the two of them, they have like 60 years of winemaking experience. Um, you know, when I'm out on the road, people always ask me if I'm the winemaker and I usually say, no, I'm the winemaker antagonist. Um, and about that time, uh, I brought in Pierre Millman, who is uh, kind of like Google for wine. You know, you send him an email with a question and you get this incredible answer back. It's great. And, uh, but it's not free. That's the, it's <laughs> unfortunately where it separates from Google. But, um, but I brought Pierre in in 2015, and you know, Steve and Jim were both kind of like, well, what do we need a French consultant for? I mean, we're making great wine, and you know, why is this a good idea? And what I really was very, very curious about, and what caused me, um, in part at least, to be interested in working with Pierre, is that um, 
I had read a number of reviews from Alan Meadows, uh, Berghound, probably going back five years or so. And uh, as, you're, as you're prone to do, um, you know, I, I just said, well, what's he giving big scores to and what do those reviews say? And it's not so much that I was interested in making or tailoring a wine that made Alan happy. It was more about what is Alan looking for in Pinot Noir? And what I really was intrigued by is that anything that he gave a good score to, about half of the review was about aromatics. I mean, it was almost like, you know, for Alan, if a wine didn't niff good, it, you know, you could just take three points off of it. You know, it could have whatever kind of taste you wanted, but for him, it wasn't a Pinot Noir experience. Um, and again, not everybody has to agree with that, but it was very, very clear to me that aromatics was something that, that, that Alan Meadows saw as being a major, major, major factor in high quality Pinot Noir. And I began thinking, what do I really know about aromatics? What do I know about the cause and effect creation of aromatics? And, you know, I had come to understand many different variables in the vineyard and in the winery. You know, I knew what the rocky soil did. I knew what different clones did. I knew what cold temperatures and earlier late picks did. I knew what heavily toasted barrels and I knew what different coopers and you know there's lots and lots of variables and I had a pretty good understanding of the cause and effect between those variables but when it came to aromatics it was kind of like catching lightning. You know it's like where does aromatics come from and, and how does it originate and why does one barrel smell really good and the other barrel doesn't smell at all and or it smells like you know old shoes or whatever you know what's driving all of this and I felt like I wasn't really getting those answers from Steve and Jim and I felt like maybe Pierre who's um, very analytical and and much more I would say maybe lab-oriented in his approach to making wine, but also, you know, multiple generations. And, you know, and Pierre consulted with Angelo Gaia and Dujac and Elena Walsh and some of, you know, fantastic names around the world. And I thought, you know, not only can I get Pierre's input on aromatics, but I can also get input into what the very best sellers in the world are doing. And so we brought on Pierre, and initially Steve and Jim were quite apprehensive, as you might well imagine. I mean, they weren't young, learning winemakers. They were winemakers that had matured into their own protocols, and they were in their own groove. And <clears throat> so there was a lot of curiosity as to what a Pierre wine would really look like. And uh, one of the ways that I solved that problem was we were having a meeting, and it was 2016 was really, I brought Pierre in in 2015, but <clears throat> he came in late in the season and, and Steve and Jim were both kind of wrapped up doing what they were doing. And so Pierre's input was fairly minimal. By the time 2016 came around, we were having a planning meeting and Pierre said, look, I'm not here to tell you guys how to make wine. You've been making wine for years, you know how to make wine. I'm here to help you make the wine you want to make. So you tell me what you guys are trying to do, and I'll give you my input, and you can decide whether you want to use it or not. And I thought, that all sounds great, 
but I'm the guy paying to fly Pierre over here, and now I've got two gatekeepers who are going to decide that they don't like what Pierre's saying, and they're going to throw it all out. Or not, or maybe, you know. But I was curious, what would a Pierre wine look like? And so I said to Steve and Jim, okay, so here's what we're going to do. Pierre's going to tell me what he would like for fruit characteristics. And I'm going to pick a ton or a ton and a half, basically a small tank of fruit for each of you guys to Pierre's characteristics. And then on that one tank, I want you to, I want Pierre to tell you what he would do. And I want you to do it exactly the way Pierre says to do it. And let's see what a Pierre wine looks like. And if it sucks, it's on me. I, you know, I'm, it's my fruit. It's my money. I got to sell this stuff. So you got no downside here. Let's, let's just go through this one tank and see what, what Pierre would do. And it actually worked out really, really well because um, the alternative approach would be to have Pierre influence their winemaking. And there would be this constant tension between whether they wanted to try something new and how far they wanted to go. And did they want to do it all or part of it? And, you know, and we went through all of those procedures. I mean, we worked with Pierre for seven years. And as the relationship developed, we, there was greater and greater um, mutual respect and a sharing of ideas. Um, but the Pierre tanks were always quite interesting because the first tank in 2016, um, when, the, when the grapes finished fermenting, the wine that came out was, was pink and it looked like, I mean, it tasted like grapefruit juice. I mean, Pierre wanted to pick really early and the acids were high and the, the sugars were quite low. And um, it took years for that wine to evolve. Um, it ultimately evolved very nicely. Um, recently, uh, you know, about six months or so ago, I had a guy come into the tasting room here from Switzerland. And, you know, he clearly had a European palate and he was tasting wine. And he goes, yeah, they're pretty good. And I said, well, here, try a bottle of this. And I gave him a bottle of the 2016, you know, which at that point, you know, we're looking at seven years or so. And um, he said, oh, yeah, that's, that's the way I want my wine. You know, this, this is, you know, the, not as much fruit. There's more acid. There's less sugar, less alcohol. Um, and what was interesting, though, over the course of seven years of working with Pierre, um, Pierre moved a lot. He had not made wine in Oregon. And I think he learned what a lot of the early Oregon winemakers had learned themselves, which is Oregon is not Burgundy. And that um, by the time um, you know, we finished the run with Pierre, which was just a year or so ago, and it was just because he got busy on a project with his daughter, and they're making some wine in Burgundy, and he just kind of ran out of time. And I think we felt like after seven years, we'd, we'd learned a lot of what we were going to learn from Pierre. So it was, it was, it was a good time um, to, to just go back on our own. And so now it's me and Steve and Jim. But we've all been influenced by Pierre. But by the time Pierre finished, you know, when he first got here, you know, a good Burgundy had to be around 13%. 
And by the time we finish, she's like, nah, you know, if it's got to be 14.1, that's okay. I mean, I don't want to be at 14.5, but, you know, you got to let the fruit get ripe so you've got the flavor and you got the layers and you got the richness. And, you know, you want your acids right. You want it to be in balance, as he would like to say. And, uh, but um, we all learned a lot. Pierre learned a lot. Uh, we learned a lot. And I think, again, you know, back to what I was saying earlier, that's what makes wine unique and special. You know, you, you never finish learning. It's just, um, it's just a constant cycle. You talked a little earlier about the difference in, in selling wine versus selling other things you'd sold in your life. So, so tell me about as you started to have wine and you needed to sell wine, tell me about learning how to sell it and learning how to sort of be comfortable selling it in a different way than previous products. Yeah, well, you know, there's kind of a funny phenomenon that goes on. Everybody likes to say scores don't matter, but it's funny how you always run out of wine with good scores. Um, but they don't matter, you know. Uh, but, you know, it goes back to really what I was talking about earlier with people developing palates. And, you know, there's, in the group of, of consumers that are interested enough in wine to appreciate, want, and respect, and have the wherewithal to find good wine and take the time to seek out good wine, um, that's a meaningful part of our, of our target customer base. And, a lot of those people want to be told what good wine is. And so they frequently look for scores, you know, because it's, a, it's, a, it's an easy way to sift through literally thousands of different products and narrow it down to a handful um, that, that they want to give their time and money to. Um, but, you know, I think that what we've also come to realize with the different cuvées that we make is that there are a lot of different palettes there um, that people like certain things. And um, some people are like the Swiss guy that came in and he wanted a very old world, you know, low alcohol, high acid, uh, much more elegant expression of Pinot Noir. And then there's other people that'll come in and they go, oh, I'm a cab drinker and I don't really like Pinot. And, you know, it's like, okay, here, try this 2015 that, you know, has 14.8 alcohol in it and see, oh, that's pretty good. I, you know, I've never had a Pinot like this, you know. Okay, well, good. So, you know, there's a range. And the thing about Pinot Noir is that um, it, um, can express itself in so many different ways. And I think that with the different cuvées, we've found that we, we don't necessarily engineer or try to build the wines to meet certain palates, but the, the different clones and the different soils and cuvées and the different picking times and the way we do things in the winery, we ultimately end up with a collection of wines that when I do wine dinners, and, you know, maybe we'll be tasting Codes, Diversité, Rochelle, and Merci. There might be four Pinots on the table at a dinner, and I'll usually have everybody vote at the end of the night, you know, who's raise hands if Codes was your favorite or whatever. And, you know, it varies from dinner to dinner and place to place, but most often we get fairly equal distributions between the various wines. Uh, early
early on, we had a tasting going on, and uh, uh, to illustrate the point, we had a whole bunch of our wines lined up. I think there were 10 or 12 of them, and there were a husband and wife couple that uh, had tasted through all the wines. And the, uh, uh, the husband said to the wife, what do you think? She goes, I really like all these wines, they're great. And he said, should we get some? And she said, yeah, let's, let's get a case. And she said to him, which one do you like? He goes, well, I really like Rochelle. And he said, what about you? He goes, well, I really like Codest. She turns to me and she says, okay, give us a case with 11 bottles of Codest and one <laughs> bottle of Rochelle. That's a true story, okay? <laughs> so, um, you know, people have different palates and they have different attitudes and, and different views on things. Um, selling wine, in part, is catering to that. Um, selling wine, in part, is, is also recognizing that there's a wide range of consumers that are in different places on their wine journey. You know, some just want a good bottle of wine and they don't really care about anything. Um, in some cases, not even the price. Just, you know, I just want a good bottle of wine. You know, let's not over-engineer this. And then there's other people that want to split every hair all the way down to, you know, anything you can tell them and that's still not enough. Um, but then, of course, you get into the different levels of distribution and uh, or, or paths to market, if you will. Um, and you know, we're sitting here in the tasting room. Obviously, this is a direct-to-consumer location. Um, you know, like everybody else, we have a wine club. Um, but unlike a lot of smaller Oregon wineries, I mean, we only do um, 1,500 cases of Le Cadeau. Uh, we have a couple, we have another brand, Jolete, that's um, about the same size, maybe a little bit bigger. Um, but the Lucado is all 100% estate fruit, and that's really our primary focus. And the, uh, um, the, the distribution thing is interesting because I always had a day job, and I was traveling, and we lived in Minneapolis, and so I would be running around meeting with customers in various cities around the country and would do that by day and by night I would go into a wine shop and have a conversation with somebody or a restaurant and say, hey, who's a good distributor in this market? And I'd get a list of names and um, tried to set up distribution in places where mostly I wanted to go or had to go. Um, so, you know, we like to ski, so Colorado was a, a first market. We were living in Minneapolis, and so we had that market. I'm from Chicago, we had that market. My wife's from Philly, so we set up the East Coast markets. And so for a very, very small winery, when we were getting started, uh, we had a much greater distribution focus than a lot of the smaller, much more regional um, wineries in Oregon. And so what happened from that is we would frequently find people coming to us in Oregon, um, and they were kind of like two different types of customers. One would be a customer that maybe had our wine in New York City, and they were taking a wine trip to Oregon, and they intentionally looked us up because they'd have our wine. And to this day, we'll have people stumble into the tasting room and go, oh, look at O, are you brand new? I've never heard of you. And, you know, it's because a lot of our wine gets sold outside of Oregon and always has. Um, and so um, 
what I've come to appreciate about the wine market is it's just highly fragmented. And the, my wife and I have spent a lot of time in the market, both at distribution level, but also here at the tasting room and with the wine club and online and the whole thing. And you know, nothing that we've done that, that everybody else hasn't done, but for a small winery, um, you know, we've gone through the different phases. I mean, when we got started, uh, at the very beginning, you know, online there were two or three forums and there weren't really transactions going on, wine clubs hadn't gotten started, and so we've watched the, the wine evolution evolve. And, you know, and more recently, to a certain extent, wine has almost morphed into the entertainment business. Um, which, to be very honest, is, is a direction that we maybe are willing to put a toe in, but not a foot. Um, you know, because what we're all about is making great wine, and that's what I want to put my time and energy into. And I'm not all about hosting great parties and, you know, hiring every musician that I can hire to try to get people to come see us. Um, there's a time and a place, and I'm not saying that we won't do that, but it's, it's not the focus. You know, what I try to do, and part of the reason we've maintained a distribution profile, and a lot of people uh, have, you know, more recently have said to me, why are you even distributing at all? I mean, 1,500 cases, you should be selling all of that wine direct. But the, and there's, and, and there's a good argument for that. But we meet our customers by having our wine in the marketplace. And so, you know, if we can be at a great country club in Houston and members can experience our wine at their country club, if we're in Florida, and just you know, a couple weeks ago we did a big wine event at the Seaside Festival on the Panhandle, which is a great event, and you know we met some new customers there. But you know there wouldn't be a reason to go to Seaside if we didn't have distribution in Florida, because the whole event is put together in concert, really, with our distributor primarily, um, and. Uh, you know, there are just places that you want to be, that you want to reach uh, customers, clients that, that are very difficult to reach without being distributed. You know, the, uh, the Blue Ridge Mountains, where everybody from Atlanta and Charlotte goes for their summer vacations. And, you know, it's pretty, pretty spectacular. Um, clubs and residences and, you know, the ski areas in Colorado. I mean, those are places where $80 bottles of wine are cheap, and those are places where you want to be. Uh, but you know, there, are, there are 350 million cases of wine or so sold in the U.S. every year, and you know Oregon makes less than 1% of that, and Oregon Pinot is half of that, roughly, and um, high-end Oregon Pinot, you can slice the wedge down even further. So, you know, the, the thing is, when you're making small production, high-quality boutique Pinot Noir, um, our customers are slivers in hay piles. 
And so the, the question is, how do you find those customers that appreciate what you're doing? And um, our approach to that has been more about being in distribution markets and being in places where those customers tend to congregate, as opposed to going down the entertainment path where we lure a whole bunch of people to our site and hopefully we catch a few in the net. So you've talked about kind of your, your, your personal journey in the industry. Tell us a little bit about Oregon wine industry. You talked a little bit about kind of your initial impressions of it. How have you seen Oregon wine grow and change in the time you've been in it? And what does the industry look like now at the end of 2023? Well, huge changes. Um, the, uh, of course, you know, the changes are filtered by my own changes, you know. Um, when I first came out here, I was 40, and you know, now I'm not even going to tell you. But it's add 25 or more. Um, and you know, I think your perspectives change uh, as an individual as, you're, as you uh, get older. Um, but the industry has clearly been a, a huge moving target. Um, the, uh, you know, when we first came here, my perception as, again, as a wine collector that didn't know the industry comprehensively, but my perception was that there were probably oh, 20 or 25 wineries in Oregon that kind of had the magic formula that, you know, had vineyards in the right place, the right fruit planted, they were farming it the right way, um, that, you know, they were consistently turning out a pretty good product. Um, my perception was also, though, that there were some huge vintages, even among some of the better, huge, huge variations among the vintages, even from some of those better producers. Um, and what I see today is much, much more uniformity. The, uh, you know, there's still some duds, you know. I mean, it's not like every wine made in Oregon is fantastic, you know. But um, there's, a, I think, a much higher bar and consistency. And there are far, far more producers that know how to make great wine, and um, big and small. And um, so in that regard, it's, it's, um, there's a little more predictability, I think, of uh, uh, the products that we're putting out. Um, certainly, the volumes have changed. I mean, when you, when you look at the history of Oregon and you listen to the, the folks that have been doing this for 40 or going back 50 years. I mean, they were running around the country trying to get people to even believe that an Oregon wine was worth drinking, you know, in a good, in a good wine shop or a good restaurant. And, you know, I came in, you know, my first commercial products hit the market in 2004 or so. Um, 2002 Vintage was the first Lacadeau wine that I was actually out selling. And, you know, in 04, 05, 06, 07, um, Oregon was 
being widely discovered and there weren't that many producers and it was almost like ring the dinner bell and yell come and get it and if you were making a decent wine distributors were going to buy pallets I mean because there was more demand than there were producers and Oregon I think had gotten dialed in by the mid 2000s to the point where the wines were more uniformly good um, and I think also, you know, we were seeing improvements in packaging and labeling and, you know, there was, there was more of a commercial industry here that wasn't, uh, wasn't as local farm sort of early on, which is kind of what it was. Um, at least that would be kind of my perspective on it. And so, um, yeah, I think, you know, where we're at now, is difficult for well it's it's a difficult place to enter mm -hmm. doctors lawyers business people um engineers whatever their trade is um that brings them to the oregon wine industry they have a tendency to go brain dead when they get here and they forget all of the business principles that they learned in their day job in the first part of their career. And, and what I mean by that is not to be insulting, but to rather suggest that there's kind of this mentality that there's this unlimited market for wine and grapes. And, you know, I was in, I was in Colorado um, meeting with a guy in a who's been in the restaurant business for many years and he was uh, the wine manager and he was telling me about a hedge fund manager who had an office across the street and the hedge fund manager had a client and the client had just inherited 110 acres of potential vineyard property in Oregon and it was in a good location and the hedge fund manager was working with the client to kind of finance it and was asking the restaurant guy to consult because they were going to plant 110 acres of grapes. And I said, has anybody thought about who might actually buy those? I mean, is there a marketing plan? Is there? And so what tends to happen and what has happened as Oregon has caught, caught some fire over the last you know, 20 years, is that you have more and more people who fall in love with the beauty, become passionate and fall in love with the wine, fall in love with the idea of making wine, and are frequently very smart, very experienced people, but they go brain dead when it comes to getting into the business. Now, the thing is, because they're smart and they're experienced and they usually have uh, some wherewithal, they survive all of that. And after a period of five or ten years, they become smart contributors and they learn how to operate the business and they understand um, the ins and outs. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a different world here than it was 20 years ago. Um, and there's, there's always room for somebody that is going to come do something great and big and different or small and different you know there's Oregon is a place where small exists very well and that's something that is I think very appealing to Oregon um, 
but you also have to be smart about it. And it's not, <clears throat> you know, the, the folks that started the industry, you know, 50 or so years ago, worked their tails off, but they were painting a, a, a blank piece of paper. And they did a fantastic job with what they built. I was fortunate because I came in at a time where that piece of paper had largely been painted and sketched, but it hadn't been fully developed. And so over the 20 years, um, I got to, to ride on their coattails without having to create an industry. I got to come into an industry that had been substantially created and to ride the wave <clears throat> along with that. But you know, now you've got an industry that um, is much bigger and much more competitive and um, much more populated. And um, oppositely, um, you know, in the distribution market, there's a lot more consolidation. There are bigger distributors that are serving bigger winery conglomerates. And, um, and there's, you know, there's widely varied cost structures in, throughout the industry. And so figuring out how to play and where to play and doing it intelligently, um, you know, takes, takes some time and planning. Um, and, but, you know, all that aside, it's a lot of fun. So what comes next for the industry and, and what comes next for you? Well, I think for the industry, you know, at the risk of being sort of trite, we're, I think we're going to see further extensions of what we've already seen. You know, we're going to see um, some bigger houses with big, deep pockets that will come in and make Oregon a meaningful part of a wine portfolio that's probably global in many cases. Um, and we've certainly seen that. I mean, you know, there are a number of French players and we've got a few Italian players now that have recently come in. And um, we've, for some time, we've had some significant California players here. Um, that wasn't the case 20 years ago. And I think that, you know, you have to ask the question, why? Well, first of all, there's a lot of land here. And the vast majority of it's still covered with fir trees or hazelnuts or something like that. So, you know, you're not taking residential land away from people. And of course, Oregon was fairly um, proactive in their zoning laws that left uh, desirable agricultural property available for agriculture. And so uh, there's, a, there's a zoning structural framework that I think plays to land availability. But I think Oregon is also a place where, um, you know, unlike California, where there are a number of forces, um, both economic and political, and well, probably all kinds of other forces, that in many cases will oppose vineyard development. I think in Oregon, it's still um, respected, appreciated, um, and considered desirable. And so, 
you don't run into all of those political or zoning barriers that you run into in other parts of the country. Um, I think that um, arguably climate change has made Oregon a more desirable place to grow and plant grapes. Um, I think my personal view is that climate change is moving slowly, but I mean, it's very real, but it's incremental. And, you know, when, when I planted the property, you know, Alan Holstein, who is, you know, the guy that told me that Grand Cru vineyards are planted in every which way and hadn't read the book on north-south road direction, um, you know, I said, what do you think about my site? And he said, well, you're at 700 feet. You're a little high. You're probably not. You're going to have years where you're not going to get your fruit ripe. Uh, well, you know, I'd like to say I was brilliant and I saw all of this coming and, you know, 700, 750 feet, you know, I'm kind of right where I want to be right now. And so, you know, 20 years ago, Alan was telling me I'd have a problem with ripeness in probably three to five out of 10 years. And I don't have any ripeness problems now. Um, and so, you know, other varietals being viable. I know early on, a lot of the pioneers tried to plant Merlot and had, you know, not very favorable outcomes. I think that we might be in a place where we can begin to revisit some of those varietals. And um, I think that uh, farming practices have evolved that make higher elevation sites viable. I mean, of course, it's gotten warmer, but um, I think that people that like the high acid, low alcohol style of Pinot Noir, um, you know, we're going to see people planting at 900 or 1,000 feet, which would have been unthinkable 20 years ago. Um, and so I think, you know, uh, answering your question on a very broad basis, I think we're going to see some diversification of varietals, which of course will factor into wine products. We've got a friendly growing environment where land is affordable. Uh, we got plenty of water, which is kind of a big deal. Grapes like water. Um, <clears throat> and although not much, they, they're not water hogs, so that's a good thing. And, um, you know, so the climate is, uh, I mean, the when I say climate, I don't mean the weather climate, but the, 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 the commercial environment for wine in Oregon is robust. And I think it favors um, a migration or at least an involvement of people that are big in the wine business. I mean, I mentioned earlier, you know, there's 350 million cases or so, and I, that's, that's old data. Maybe there's 400 million cases in the U.S. It's probably closer to that number. Uh, but, you know, whether it's 350 or 400 million cases of wine sold in the U.S. every year, it's a whole lot more than they grow in Oregon and produce in Oregon. And uh, globally, um, you know, there are over 3 billion cases of wine made every year. Um, and that, that's a lot of stuff. 
And what happens with the wine industry is as it grows, it brings the support services with it. So you get label printers, you get glass distributors, and then eventually you get glass manufacturers, and you get you know, farm equipment people, and they become big farm equipment people, and you know, you've got tanks, and you've got wine construction, you've got ar winery construction, you've got architects. I mean, and then, of course, all the restaurants come in on the, on the back end. And so you see an evolution. I mean, you can look to places like California um, to see how wine has evolved and what, it, what effect it has on the community. And I think that you know, Oregon's, Oregon's in a place where we're going to see that sort of an evolution. Um, it's very, very clear that you can grow good fruit in Oregon. It's very clear that um, climate change is opening up the door to other varietals. It's very clear that uh, Oregon Pinot Noir and Chardonnay um, are world class. And you know certainly Pinot Gris and Riesling and some others can play in that game as well. Um, so I think we're going to see more of the same. You know, There's a trend that's been started, and it's just going to keep going. And what about for you and your brand? Well, you know, there was a, there was a place um, probably 10 years or so ago when I was, you know, still looking to the future and, and seeing what at the time looked to be closer to an unlimited runway. Of course, none of us have unlimited runways, but you don't, if you're fortunate, you don't fully comprehend that until later. Um, and I think, you know, early on when you're, you know, if you're 20 or 30 or 40, you, you know, you just, everything's forward. Um, but going back about 10 years ago, I thought, you know, it'd be fun to have another vineyard. I mean, in, in all of the things I love doing in the wine business, to me, the viticultural side of it is the most interesting. I love developing vineyards. I love the clones, and I love vineyard strategy, which is something that you don't hear a lot about, really. But in every aspect of the wine business, there's a strategy. And the, the vineyard strategy piece is very interesting. And I, I thought about. Um, uh, having another property. And what I've seen over the years is that the bigger you get, you diffuse your focus. Mm -hmm. And I felt that that would be at odds with my goal of trying to make the very, very best possible wines that we could make. Um, you know, we have about 17 acres planted, um, typical yields, you know, that's 25, 2,800 cases. And you know, 10 years or so ago at that point in time, I really made a decision to try to wring every bit of quality out of what we currently have and to be better and stay small than to be bigger and diffuse uh, my resources, whether they be just you know, physical or monetary or intellectual or capacity, I mean, whatever they are. But in, you know, also in the vineyard level, everything is, moves at a glacial pace. I mean, early on when I was just getting started, 
uh, Matt Kinney, who is just down the road from me, um, and was kind of one of these early do-everything-yourself kind of guys. Um, you know, we were tasting wine 20 years ago, and, and he was pretty young at the time. And he said, you know, in the wine business, you only get to do it once a year. And so you got to make every year count because you only get so many years. And, you know, I've always remembered that. I mean, it seemed a little strange to me at the time because I'm talking about sort of your life perspective runway. And when you're 40, you see it as unlimited. And so to be thinking about only getting so many years. But one of the things in the wine business is because you put a date on every bottle you make and you get to watch the vintages, you know, you're, you're I mean, time is a huge part of the process. And you become, I think, keenly aware of time. And so, um, you know, for me, what has been really, really interesting. I mean, I'm excited in that I've got a new clone that I've been working on getting for five years. And I'm about 99.9% .9 certain that I have the first of this clone in Oregon. Um, and it's clean for all you people that are watching that are worrying about viruses and things of that sort. Um, and I don't know what it's going to do. Um, it comes from an interesting reputation. And um, it's, uh, it's Pinot Noir. And we'll see the first fruit from it this year. Um, and I don't know what the flavor profile is going to be. And I don't know if it'll be great or if it'll be a dud. Um, but you know, it's like clone 18 or 19. I'm not sure what number I'm up to right now, but something like that. Um, but there's always another dial to turn or an adjustment to make. Um, we're playing with some different footprints on vineyard spacing and I'm looking at things to try to mitigate, comp uh, mitigate uh, vigor um, in the few parts of the vineyard where I actually have any vigor. Um, but uh, there's two little areas, that are kind of these two little bumps that have deep soil that's quite fertile. I call them the camel humps. And, uh, you know, I've ripped out vines and replanted the camel humps. And, and um, you know, that was a few years ago. But there's still a piece of a camel hump that hasn't been planted. And so there's a, a, a footprint and a rootstock combination that I want to try on the camel hump to see if you can grow devigorated vines on highly vigorous soils. Um, you know, there's always more. And so I think for me, it's really about working. I don't have a lot of extra dirt to plant. There is some. Um, but it's about fine-tuning our plant material, fine-tuning our footprint, um, growing um, hopefully amazing fruit, and then continuing to build on uh, the knowledge that the knowledge base that we have uh, in the winery to uh, turn that into what I hope will be you know memorable world-class wines um, and we just keep trying to move the bar all right that's all the questions that I have for you uh, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have or anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to cover today Nah, well you know, it's probably a little geeky, but I hinted at 
the notion earlier about rocks. And um, what I knew early on is that there's a fairly high correlation between great wine and rocky vineyards around the world. That's um, not to say that there isn't great wine from non-rocky vineyards, because there is. Um, but a lot of the great wines come from rocky vineyards. And one of the things that looking, you know, stuff when you understand it, you, you kind of get the duh effect afterwards. It's like, oh, why didn't I figure that out earlier? You know, because it just seems pretty obvious, you know. But um, the thing about Oregon and rocks is that we get 40 inches of rain between November and early June. Um, and if you have spongy soils that absorb moisture, you're taking 40 inches of rain and saturating the topsoil. And you end up with uh, a tremendous amount of water in the soil. And the vines grow pretty much throughout the season with access to more or less an unlimited amount of water because their, their toes can go in the rootstock and can pull it out because it's there. Um, if you think about when clusters begin to form, you know, we have, uh, we have bud break in April, we have bloom usually around June 10th. And so you start to see some berries beginning to form towards the end of June. And throughout July and early August, the clusters are beginning to form and then they're filling out throughout August and on into September. Um, what I've seen over the years is that in the rockier parts of our vineyard, we get to um, a, a deficit irrigation place in early July. Uh, we start, we, we'll, I'll start to see vines beginning to shut down, and if I don't irrigate them minimally, I, we don't do a lot of irrigation, but if I don't give them just enough of a drink to keep them growing, we'll end up with vines that have shoots that don't even reach the top of the wire. And if you think about that during the cluster formation period that happens basically from late June through kind of mid-August, um, that's the time when if you don't have water, you're going to end up with smaller clusters, smaller berries, less vigor, um, and oppositely, if you've got vines that have access to unlimited amounts of water, they're going to grow bigger berries, bigger clusters, and you're going to end up with very different fruit. And so a lot of the rock question, I think, apart from the mineral that influences the flavors, but when you look at the, the growth and the development, the growth of the vines and, and the development of fruit clusters, and you look at that, vis-a-vis -vis the water table and what's available to the, wine, to the vine naturally and the timing on when those clusters develop, what you quickly see is that if you're getting rid of that 40 inches of rain by early or mid-July, you're going to end up with a different type of fruit at the end of the, of the season. And um, that's been kind of a big aha. And that, you know, it shouldn't be. It's one of those things that when you explain it and you look back on it, you just kind of go, well, yeah, of course, you know. But, um, but rocks matter. Um, and, and again, I'm not saying that 
great wine isn't made on vineyards that aren't rocky. That's not the message. But um, I think if I've learned anything in 25 years, it's that we have a pretty unique site that is differentiated from a lot of sites in Oregon, and a big part of that's the rock. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us today, sharing your story, sharing your beautiful space here and the beautiful picture behind you there for us to stare at. Uh, go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you, guys. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years. <laughs>